Coming up next on the Passion Struck Podcast. This concept that I talk about with my patients that I talk about in gut feelings of shame, inflammation, how do these mental, emotional, spiritual things, if it has to do with chronic stress or trauma, body love or lack of self-compassion, how do these things impact our physical health and how they literally can be stored in our cells? impacting the way that our body methylates, which is our body's ability to regulate inflammation and detox and make neurotransmitters. How is it impacting us? Our body is a cellular library and the thoughts and our words and actions and experiences are the books that fill up that cellular library. Welcome to Passion Struck. Hi, I'm your host, John R. Miles. And on the show, we decipher the secrets, tips, and guidance of the world's most inspiring people and turn their wisdom into practical advice for you and those around you. Our mission is to help you unlock the power of intentionality so that you can become the best version of yourself. If you're new to the show, I offer advice and answer listener questions on Fridays. We have long form interviews the rest of the week with guests ranging from astronauts to authors, CEOs, creators, innovators, scientists, military leaders, visionaries, and athletes. Now, let's go out there and become Passion Struck. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode 270 of Passion Struck, recently ranked by Interview Valet as the third best podcast for mindset. And thank you to each and every one of you who come back weekly to listen and learn how to live better, be better, and impact the world. And if you're new to the show, thank you so much for being here, or you simply want to introduce this to a friend or family member. We now have episode starter packs, which are collections of our fans' favorite episodes that we organize into convenient topics to give any new listener a great way to get acclimated to everything we do here on on the show. Either go to Spotify or passionstruck.com slash starter packs to get started. And in case you missed it, earlier in the week, I interviewed behavioral economist Dr. Uri Ganesi about his new book, Mixed Signals, How Incentives Really Work. Please check it out in case you missed it. I also wanted to thank you so much for your continued support of the show. Your ratings and reviews go such a long way in helping to improve our popularity. But more importantly, we're bringing more people into the Passion Struck community where we can give them weekly doses of hope, meaning, and inspiration. Now let's talk about today's episode. Nutrition and health can be a source of frustration and confusion for many as the emphasis on what, when, and how to eat often overlooks the emotional component of eating. Today, one of the top functional medical experts, Dr. Will Cole, joins me on PassionStruck to shed light on the link between physical and emotional health, providing a framework for understanding the gut-brain connection and how to positively influence it. We explore his new book, Gut Feelings, healing the shame-fueled relationship between what you eat and how you feel. In our interview, we discuss how stress and shame can cause gut inflammation, leading to a process called shameflammation, which can contribute to chronic health conditions like autoimmune disorders, leaky gut, IBS, and other GI disorders. Conversely, problems with the gut can manifest in mood swings, anxiety, and food cravings. True health encompasses not only what you eat, but how you feel. Fortunately, it's possible to heal the connection between the physical and mental aspects of health through good nutrition and somatic practices that support a healthy gut and brain. Dr. Cole offers holistic tools to help you reassess your relationship with food and your body, reconnecting you with your gut feelings. His 21-day gut feeling plan provides a roadmap to bridge the gap between emotions and health. Dr. Will Cole is a leading functional medicine expert who consults people around the world via webcam. Having started one of the first 
functional medicine telehealth centers in the world. Dr. Cole specializes in clinically investigating underlying factors of chronic disease and customizing a functional medicine approach for thyroid issues, autoimmune conditions, hormonal imbalances, digestive disorders, and brain problems. He is also the host of the popular The Art of Wellbeing podcast and the best-selling author of Ketotarian, The Inflammation Spectrum, and the New York Times bestseller, Intuitive Fasting. Thank you for choosing PassionStruck and choosing me to be your host and guide on your journey to creating an intentional life. Now, let that journey begin. I am so excited today to welcome Dr. Will Cole to the Passion Struck Podcast. Welcome, Will. Thanks for having me. I wanted to congratulate you on your great new book, Gut Feelings, Healing the Shame-Fueled Relationship Between What You Eat and How You Feel. Congratulations. Thanks so much. It's been labor of love for sure. I'm glad that it's finally coming out. What led you to practicing functional medicine? Was there a significant event that happened or a chain of events? I would say a chain of events is probably how you would describe it. I wasn't just one thing. I grew up really being just always interested in health and wellness. My first job in in high school, I was 16 years old. My first job was working at the finish line, selling Nikes and Adidas and Air One shoes at the time. And I used my paychecks at the finish line to go to the health food store and buy the latest superfood that I read about or latest herb that had some exciting research as a 16 year old. And I thought it was normal for me to do that. And I didn't really pay much attention to the fact that people thought I was kind of weird that I was packing my lunches at 16, like with bell peppers in it and snapping <laughs> peas. But that's who you're talking to is this slightly weird health nerd and biohacking before biohacking was a thing that I just was interested in learning about it and how it could make me feel and improve how I wanted to feel. And then that evolved to beyond just being a hobby at 16, 17, 18, to want to be trained in this formally. So I went to an integrative medicine school in LA called Southern California University of Health Sciences and Whittier outside of LA. And then I was trained by just amazing medical doctors and acupuncturists and doctors of chiropractic and naturopaths and nurse practitioners in their own craft to really wanting to hone health science, really. And I graduated and we started one of the first functional medicine telehealth centers in the world over 13 years ago. I moved back to Pennsylvania where I'm from. And we didn't have the language 13 years ago for telehealth. We called it a virtual functional medicine clinic. That was the best I could do as far as describing how I was shipping labs to people and talking to them via webcam when they were in a different states and countries than mine. I haven't changed in 13 plus years. It's all that I do. It's my day job. And the books or the podcast are really just natural ripple effects of my passion for my patients, figuring out complex health issues and getting to the root cause of why people are struggling and ultimately a ripple effect of that weird 16 year old (laughs) packing his (laughs) lunch with the random superfoods. Well, you mentioned biohacks earlier. Is there one that's more prominent that you've discovered than any other? Well, I talk a lot about in gut feelings. I put together a protocol for that book that is adapted from protocols that we put in for patients based on labs for people to nourish both the gut and the feelings, the physiological and the psychological, the physical, and then the mental, emotional, spiritual, and how both sides a both and approach when you're talking about feeling great or specifically different mental health issues like anxiety, depression, brain fog, fatigue, 
and also autoimmune inflammation issues. Those are two large part of my patient base, people with autoimmune issues and brain health issues and looking to optimize both or one of those. So biohacking is so many things that I love. I think that one that comes to mind, I think it's one of the aspects of the protocol and gut feelings, but alternating cold and hot therapies, one thing that's definitely trending online, people are aware of it, because it's a great tool to regulate the nervous system and support lowered inflammation levels. So it could be as simple as a cold shower and hot bath. If you have access to a sauna, access to steam room, anything like that, even sauna blankets are available. I recommend them to many patients to alternate between that and either an ice bath, a cold plunge or cold shower, whatever they have access to is a great way for somebody that has inflammation or is dealing with fatigue, brain fog, or dealing with anxiety, depression, some hypervigilant nervous system issue. That's something that people would classify as a biohack, I guess, that would be a tool that I get to implement in patients' lives a lot. And I also talk about it in the book. Yeah, it's interesting. I was lucky enough to have one of your peers on the show, uh, Dr. Mark Hyman, and we got into homeostasis and we were discussing both cold therapy and hot therapy. And what I didn't realize is that they both do very much the same similar thing to the body. Have you found that one is better than the other? To answer that question fully, I would say it's down to bioindividuality and really looking at the person's case and also their experimentation with this and seeing what they're, they enjoy the most, what that resonates with the, most, with, with the most. I have to say, if I had to give my own subjective opinion on this, I think that most people don't sweat enough. Now, I'm talking to someone that lives in Florida. So maybe you're going to hit me for saying that, but <laughs> many people aren't, they're still, if they're in Florida, they're in air conditioned space during the summertime, right? Most of the time. So unless you're outside a lot with your job, some people certainly are. Many of us live more insular lives that aren't sweating as much as our ancestors would. So if I had to pick one over the other, I actually do like sauna therapy more than cold therapy, but I think a both and approach is really nice. And I think the alternating between the two, really, there's a lot of synergy and magic there, vasodilation, vasoconstriction, and the contrast therapy between the both that actually, I think, amplify the benefits of both, certainly. But if I had to pick one, I would. Get ready to supercharge your hiring experience with Indeed, our fantastic partner, we at PassionStruck are all about seeking smarter, more efficient ways to do things, and indeed perfectly aligns with this philosophy when it comes to hiring. It's more than just a job site. It's a comprehensive platform that revolutionizes the way you find the perfect candidates. With its powerful matching engine and over 350 million global monthly visitors, Indeed streamlines the hiring process, bringing top talent straight to you. No more sifting through endless unqualified resumes. Indeed does the heavy lifting just for you. And what I love about Indeed is its ability to centralize all your hiring activities from scheduling interviews and screening applicants to messaging candidates. It's all in one place. During my career, I've hired thousands of employees and I only wish I had Indeed's efficiency and speed back then. And here's a fact that absolutely blows my mind. 93% of employers, according to a recent survey, say Indeed delivers the best quality matches over other job sites. That's quality and speed hand in hand. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash passionstruck. Just go to indeed.com slash passionstruck right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. 
Indeed.com slash passion struck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember, so we put them all at passionstruck.com slash deals. Now, back to passion struck. I'm glad you brought that up, and I'm just going to tell the audience that a couple of weeks after Will's episode launches, we will have Dr. Rhonda Patrick on the podcast, and we're going to do a deep dive into sauna therapy. So can't wait stay to do tuned. that. It's going to be great. You stay tuned. So if you're a regular listener to the show, you understand the difference between functional medicine and conventional medicine. But for someone who's new to the show, they might not realize the difference. Can you explain how the two differentiate from each other? Sure. The main differences between functional medicine and mainstream medicine, number one, we interpret labs using a thinner reference range. So anybody that's listening or watching this right now will know, hey, when I get my lab, my number, my biomarker is being compared to this reference range, this X to Y interval of numbers that I'm being compared to. We get that reference range largely from a statistical bell curve average of people who go to labs. It's non-standardized for the most part. If you go to another lab, you'll see that reference range may vary from lab to lab. People that are predominantly going to labs are people with health problems, sadly. So there's a lot of people that intuitively know, heck, like something's not right here. My fatigue, my weight loss resistance, my digestive problem, my brain fog, my anxiety, something. These things are not normal. And the doctor runs the basic labs and many times people are told the labs are pretty normal. Maybe you're just depressed. Here's an antidepressant. Or maybe you're just getting older. Or many new moms are told me you're just a new mom. Or whatever the case may be. All they're, In those instances, what they're being unintentionally told is they're a lot like the other people with health problems that they're being compared to. Comparing yourself to people with health problems is no way for you to find out why you feel the way that you do. And just because something's common doesn't necessarily mean it's normal. So we want to look at optimal, not average in functional medicine. So we're looking at a thinner range within that larger reference range. You mentioned Dr. Mark Hyman, my colleague and friend. All of us are trained through the Institute for Functional Medicine and we're looking at the Cleveland Clinic's Functional Medicine Center. And really any, any doctor that's IFM trained is looking at these optimal, not average reference ranges. So that's the first thing. We're looking at the spectrum between health and health problems. And by the time somebody's diagnosed with a health problem, for most chronic health problems, it's about four to 10 years prior to that diagnosis when things were brewing on that, what I call the inflammation spectrum. The second thing we do differently in functional medicine is we run more comprehensive labs. So we want to look at what we would call upstream or root problems like underlying gut problems or chronic infections or hormonal imbalances, nutrient deficiencies, whatever is relevant to the health history. We want to look at the stones that are most likely to have something underneath it, to get data, objective data as to why do I have this problem, to use the example of fatigue. In the West, we will just label that as fatigue or chronic fatigue syndrome. All right, being diagnosed with that, just anybody that has chronic fatigue syndrome will already tell you, I already know I'm chronically tired, but why? 
So it's really the diagnostic, the sort of medicinal matching game of just getting a set of symptoms and then labeling it is really, in my opinion, and what many of our opinions would be in functional medicine, an incomplete perspective, because it doesn't tell you why you're chronically fatigued. And there's a whole variety of reasons of why. And for some person, it's going to be A, B, and C. For the next person, it's going to be D, E, and F. So it's just the symptom of fatigue in this example is just the check engine light. The check engine light's on, but we have to look underneath that proverbial hood to see what's dysfunction, imbalance, deficient to be causing the symptoms in the first place. So that's the second thing. And then with the third thing, we, we realize we're all different. And then that's kind of connected to the first two, but it's bio-individuality and we're all different and you're not going to have a cookie cutter, one size fits all approach to getting healthy. So we use food as medicine. We use natural medicines. We use medications when needed. We use biohacking. We do mind-body practice, trauma work, somatic practices, all the things that I talk about in gut feeling freely and how we get people that have these chronic health problems like autoimmunity, like inflammatory problems, and like brain health problems, like anxiety and depression to get better and heal. So that's my long-winded sermon on functional medicine. Yeah, I had Dr. Cynthia Lee on last year. I'm not sure if you are familiar with her or not, but she's a functional medicine doctor as well. And she gave me one of the best analogies that I still love for the way to think of it. And that is she thinks of the human body as the analogy of a tree. And what happens is in Western medicine, we like to treat the branches or the leaves, but we're not looking at the whole system of the tree. And when we're not, then like my pine tree that came down during a storm last year, that's what ends up happening to us because this thing has been slowly rotting and the root cause of it could have been identified years before it happened, but we end up treating things in protocols instead of looking at the whole system and the importance of it being in balance. Absolutely. Uh, which, yeah. So speaking of balance throughout your entire book, the gut brain connection serves as a steady foundation throughout it. Mm -hmm. Can you discuss what that means for someone who's not familiar with it? Sure. The gut and brain are formed from the same fetal tissue. So when babies are growing in their mother's womb, the gut and brain are formed from that same tissue and it's inextricably linked for the rest of our life through what's known as the gut-brain axis or so the connection between the gut and the brain. 95% of serotonin is made in the gut, our happy neurotransmitter. 50% of dopamine, our pleasure neurotransmitter, is made in the gut, stored in the gut. From a neurotransmitter standpoint, but also an immune standpoint, 75% of the immune system is made in the gut. Inflammation is a product of the immune system. So both from a neurotransmitter and an immunological or an inflammatory component, there's a lot of far-reaching implications of how the gut or what researchers refer to as the second brain. And if you think about it, the intestines kind of even physically resemble the brain, but the far-reaching implications of the gut and its communication with the brain, but it's bi-directional. It's a crosstalk, if you will, between the gut and the brain and the brain and the gut. So this is very academically researched for the past 15 plus years, looking at the connection between the two when you're talking about things like anxiety, depression, brain fog, fatigue, someone just that wanted to like cognitively op be optimal to autoimmune issues when you're talking about inflammation is concerned. So it's a major role in many people, whether they know it or not. Okay. And I wanted to deep dive on this just a little bit further going into the nervous system and areas that people might not understand. So I was hoping you could go through the enteric nervous system and how it relates to our larger autonomic system and its impact on the gut brain connection. Sure. 
So our autonomic nervous system has three main branches. We have the sympathetic, which is the fight or flight stressed response. We have the parasympathetic, which is the resting, rest, digest, hormone balance state, if you will. And then the enteric nervous system, which is largely the, the gut, the intestines nervous system. The gut is innervated also by the parasympathetic through what's known as the vagus nerve which is the largest cranial nerve in the body. It gets its name, which translates from the wandering nerve. And it's a master key component to our parasympathetic nervous system. So many people that have digestive problems, meaning they have maybe some constipation or they have IBS or they have bloating, slow GI motility, or any other gut problem that's causing any downstream issue. Like when you're talking about leaky gut syndrome or a lack of what's called a migrating motor complex, which is the gut-brain axis kind of innervation between the brain and the gut, allowing the nervous system to move the gut in a way to keep the bacteria of the microbiome, which is upwards of 100 trillion bacteria, into the large intestines where it should be, and a lack of vagal nerve tone and the enteric nervous system will cause a overgrowth from the large intestines into the small intestines and causing something called SIBO, which we see a lot on patients' labs. And I talk about it in gut feelings. It stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which is a big percentage of people that have irritable bowel syndrome or IBS, acid reflux issues, indigestion, heartburn is actually caused by SIBO, which in many ways, and for many people, is in part a nervous system issue. It's It has to do with the enteric nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. So a lot of what I see clinically, a component of it is has to do with the vagus nerve. And the, like you saw, the autonomic nervous system is imbalanced. The sympathetic fight or flight stress state is overactive and there's inflammation. You have some hormonal dysregulations. You pe- People feel anxious, but exhausted. And the parasympathetic is weakened, or there's a poor vagal tone. So you'll see this phenomenon of nervous system dysregulation or a hypervigilance of the sympathetic response, which is a lack of vigilance of the parasympathetic. So that's really what's at play here. And people have to realize, we have to ask the question, what's contributing to that nervous system dysregulation? And as I talk about in gut feelings, it's both a gut and a feelings issue, meaning it's a physical but also mental, emotional, spiritual. And the fact that mental health isn't separate from physical health, mental health is physical health. And we really can't talk about one without talking about the other. And physical things like underlying gut problems or nutrient deficiencies or chronic infections, we see a lot of mold toxicity issues, for example, on patients' labs or people that have chronic Lyme disease or different physical things, right? That will impact how the nervous system is regulating. It's going to really breed inflammation and sympathetic to be high because cortisol will come up. Cortisol is what's called it. It's an endogenous immunosuppressant. So in states of inflammation, one of the many things that cortisol is supposed to do, in addition to you know getting you out of that threat state from an evolutionary standpoint, it's also an anti-inflammatory. It regulates your blood sugar and blood pressure. But if cortisol is always high because of that sympathetic fight or flight stress state, that neuroendocrine, the nervous system and hormonal systems off, it's unsustainable and you're not going to feel good. But you really have to deal with the physical side of what's causing the inflammation in the first place to calm down that cortisol dysregulation. But it's not just the gut stuff. The feeling stuff is just as important, but it's a lot more maybe insidious to unpack. But looking at things like chronic stress and trauma 
and what I call it in the book, shame flammation, this sort of impact that shame can have on the human nervous system and immune system is just as important. And with these metaphysical meals, if you will, that we feed ourselves on a daily basis in the form of unkind thoughts to ourselves or chronic stress and lacking healthy boundaries with our job or family members or unresolved trauma from our past, all will contribute to this dysregulated nervous system and inflammatory response just as much as that fast food meal that people could have too. I want to deep dive all of that because as you discuss in the book, in the Western world, we like to separate our mental health from the physical health. But as you just, just discussed, the truth is our mental health is our physical health. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with Chris Palmer. He's a Harvard psychiatrist, but he just came out last year with a great book called Brain Energy. And what he discovered through the work that he was doing clinically was that there's a bi-directional relationship between metabolic disorders and mental disorders. And evidence shows a link between an imbalance of the organisms that make up the gut microflora and several mental diseases, including anxiety and depression. And he feels, and we had a lot of discussion about it, that one of the reasons we're seeing all mental disorders increase in prevalence is because of our declining gut health. Why is our gut at the center of human health, including mental health? And why is it so important? Yeah, well, it's really down to the cornerstone, the pivotal role that it plays in both a nervous system standpoint, the fact that a lot of our nervous system and our transmitters are made and stored in the gut, and also the fact that two-thirds, 75 or so percent of the immune system, when you talk about inflammation, impacts and the role that inflammation plays in a lot of these problems. So there's a whole field of research called the cytokine model of cognitive function. Cytokines are pro-inflammatory cells. So it's research looking at how does inflammation impact how our brain works? How does inflammation impact mental health? There are the studies, the field of research that you're talking about here with different colonies of bacteria and the metabolites they produce. I talk about it at length in gut feelings because it's definitely true. It's very clear that what's going on in the second brain will influence our actual brain in many far-reaching ways, both from a metabolite or a transmitter production standpoint of what bacteria is in our gut. And we know that lower levels of different lactobacillus and bifidobacterium, these beneficial bacteria of the probiotics of the microbiome, the beneficial bacteria, lower levels of this are linked to lower levels of serotonin and other beneficial neurotransmitters. And a lot of people that have lack of bacterial diversity are going to have not just more prone to things like anxiety and depression, but also have more chronic inflammation levels too. Because the more diversity we have of the beneficial bacteria, they act as regulators of opportunistic and pathogenic bacteria. So you'll see a lot of these things, and we run labs, like these are things that we quantify on labs at the telehealth center. You'll see these, it's akin to, in my mind, like weeds overgrowing in this gut garden. There's nothing wrong with weeds, right? They are part of nature. But when we have an overgrowth of these opportunistic bacteria or pathogenic bacteria, some are potential autoimmune triggers as well, like Klebsiella, for example. These things are higher in what are called lipopolysaccharides or LPS, which are bacterial endotoxins that really raise inflammation levels in the body and can trigger what are what's called leaky gut syndrome or increased intestinal permeability. 
things are passing through the gut that shouldn't be able to pass through the gut, like undigested food proteins, like from a variety of different foods, which can trigger food sensitivities, and those bacterial toxins, which can trigger something called molecular mimicry, or the case of mistaken identity, really, when the immune system researchers refer to it as the immune system losing recognition of self, which I think is a really something to ponder on because it's happening on a physical level, certainly with autoimmunity, when the immune system loses recognition of self and is tagging the brain or the thyroid or the joints when you're talking about autoimmunity as a virus and attacking it as if it were a threat, creating an inflammatory cascade. But then as I talk about in the book, these mental, emotional, spiritual components of it and what came first, the chicken or the egg. And for some people, when you look at the research around shame and resolved trauma and people that have higher what are called ACE scores or adverse childhood experience scores, and they have things that they haven't really dealt with from their past or even their current stressful life event and how the sort of relationship with yourself can that stress that can bring can certainly trigger inflammation for people as well. So that it's multifaceted, but ultimately these are the questions that we need to ask, if, especially if people are doing all the things, quote unquote, but aren't getting better. We need to look at both the gut and the feeling side of this conversation. Yeah, as a veteran myself, I know a ton of veterans as well as knowing first responders, et cetera, who are dealing with lots of ailments from chronic pain to emotional distress to other things. And I really think what you're talking about here makes a whole lot of sense because I myself started out by going to a typical conventional doctor and I ended up switching to a functional medicine doctor. And when he looked at my labs and he started to look at a lot of my vitamin levels and then my hormone levels, he came back to me and he said, when you were in school, did you like to get A's? And I said, of course, who doesn't like to get A's? He goes, well, right now, many of your readings are D's and F's, and we've got to get them to be A's. And I think that is something that a lot of us face uh, unknowingly. What would be some of the first steps that if you're having some of these things that you're talking about, whether it's chronic fatigue or chronic pain or other things, that a person could take to understand what's really going on and where they should start attacking it? Well, it depends. I think the entry point for people is going to be different. Ideally, I would, most people are going to benefit the most from a both and approach, meaning both the gut and a feeling side of it. And that's really why I wrote the book is because I have patients that are more they will say, well, I like the trauma piece, like unresolved trauma is like too overwhelming for them or a chronic stress. They don't even want to go there. It is, it's just overwhelming to even broach that topic. But the idea of a prescriptive food protocol to support their gut brain axis and lower inflammation levels support their gut health is totally doable for them. So that's wonderful. And that's their entry point. And if people can stay consistent with the simple or consistent with that, for example, when they start feeling better, inflammation lower, their brain's sharper, they're supporting their gut brain axis and their nervous system. I find that at some point in their journey, they're going to have the resilience and the bandwidth to cross the bridge of dealing with the feeling side. If it's a piece of their puzzle, which for most people, it is at least a component to it. So 
at the beginning, like if I'm not putting my clinical hat on, it starts for me, for my telehealth patients to asking a lot of questions and really looking at things like gut health and nutrient deficiencies and hormonal imbalances, all the physiological stuff, as much as we're talking about the psychological stuff, we have every patient fill out what's called an ACE questionnaire or the adverse childhood experience questionnaire of looking was there physical abuse going growing up? Was there sexual abuse growing up? Was there neglect growing up? Was there mental illness in the home growing up? Was there on and on? The higher the A score research shows, you're more likely to have different things like chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, autoimmune problems, digestive problems, metabolic issues like type 2 diabetes, insulin resistance, the higher A score is. So we have to deal with both sides of the coin and we have to lean into these practices. Now, I see some people that the food stuff's overwhelming, right? They just like, man, that's just too much. But they're willing to lean into the feeling side a bit more. But when their nervous system's calmed on that side, then they're willing to talk about the food. So it depends on where you're at on your health journey and what you're ready for. You don't have to do all the things to start moving the needle in the positive direction, I guess is my way of saying that. And I put together a, a protocol in the book that has my favorite gut and feeling action items for people to explore what resonates with them. So for the gut, for one example, I talk about a GAPS protocol, which is something we've used for the past 13 plus years, but it's it's an acronym that stands for gut and psychology syndrome for things like anxiety, depression, brain fog, and fatigue, or gut and physiology syndrome, i.e. autoimmune inflammation problems like musculoskeletal inflammation or some sort of autoimmune problem. And you can use it interchangeably because it's just supporting the gut-brain axis, again, using food. So that's an action item people can do and be consistent with. Or on the feeling side, what the latest researchers are looking at around somatic experiences, somatic practices, or and EMDR and different trauma therapies and breath work and meditation and some obscure stuff that I've seen to be very effective. I want people to deal with both sides, to be deal with it from a bi-directional standpoint. And I find that we can untangle a dysregulated nervous system faster with that approach. Yeah. Well, I love how in the book you say that you wrote it so that it could be a call to action for us to slow down, breathe, and allow our body to heal by addressing the emotional component of our health. And unless we do that, we'll never heal. So I love that is the way you started the book. Well, when I think of eating issues, a lot of it gets down to things that we crave. And I think many people go through life suffering because of their relationship with food and giving into their cravings. And I just put out a recent episode with Dr. Amy Shaw, who has a new book out called I'm So Effing Hungry. And I wanted to ask you about this craving and what is food peace and how can one achieve it? Love it. Amy Shaw is a longtime friend of mine. Like I've known Amy for a long time. I love her. It's multifaceted. I mean, I've got microbiome plays a role in this. We know different opportunistic pathogenic bacteria talk about the research in the book, how actually influence how we crave what we crave. I think of the 90s cartoon, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. When you think of that villain, remember Krang? I think his name was Krang, where the brain was inside of this robot and the brain controlled the robot thing. And that's kind of how humans are, is that we co-evolve with the microbiome. Depending on the study that you look at, we have about 100 trillion bacteria. We have about 10 trillion or so, maybe a little bit more human cells. We are by far more bacteria than human. 
And we're sort of this sophisticated host for the microbiome, which in many ways, they kind of created us to transport them around the room and around the world and repopulate. So if we did not have the microbiome, this collective trillion metropolis of microbes in our gut, we could not metabolize food. We could not make neurotransmitters. We could not convert hormones. We could not create inflammation to fight off viruses and bacteria. We would be goners without the microbiome. In a way, it's symbiotic. We help it as well to get around the world and to we feed it. We are what our microbiome eats. But by far, I think it's uh, we have the benefit more than it in many ways. So, so, it, but we know different weeds overgrowing in this gut garden, different yeast and fungal overgrowth, different bacterial opportunistic and back, pathogenic bacteria will modulate the way that we crave things. It'll actually influence blood sugar, influence insulin signaling, and the way that satiety and hunger signals are functioning in the brain and to the endocrine system. So why we crave what we crave really has to do a lot with the gut majorly. And then on top of that, this inflammatory component of it as well. Because the more inflamed somebody is, the more you're going to have receptor site signaling issues. So things like leptin, and insulin and ghrelin, the signaling or the communication between these biochemical emails that our hormones are going to be off impacting cravings. So many people are stuck on that blood sugar roller coaster, which is really the term for it is metabolic inflexibility or metabolic rigidity, where the body's stuck in that, sh that sugar burning, fatigued, hangry, ravenous craving state. But a lot of part of it, if you look upstream, there's a massive gut microbiome component to it, for sure. Well, I'm going to just take what you just said and mention something that Mark Hyman mentioned in the last interview I did with him, which is if you want to look in longevity, the first thing he mentioned you want to get rid of is sugar and carbohydrates, really eating wheat and things like that from your diet basically to break that cycle that you're talking about. Now, I want to take a, a step back. You mentioned it earlier, the term shameflammation. And when I think of shame, because the word ha is made up of shame and inflammation, when I think of shame, I think of Brene Brown and her focus on it. What are the effects of shame on our inner world? Yeah, it's pervasive. And it's a killer. Brene Brown, I quoted her in the book saying it's lethal. I think in many ways, it's the common emotion that I see in so many things. When you're looking about the feeling side of gut feelings, there's a lot of shame when you're talking about trauma. So whether it's trauma that they've gone to gone through in their life, or I even talk about the science around intergenerational, transgenerational trauma, and people don't even know why they're shamed. They're like I'm born in shame in many ways. And certainly accumulative trauma over the course of their life will compound shame in their life as well. But also there's a lot of shame around chronic stress too. People feel with our constant go hustle culture, burnout, seeing as sort of this deified thing of you're just more successful. It's normalized so much in our culture. There's a lot of shame when someone's chronically stressed. They don't feel like they are eating the way that they should be because they're always on the go. They're eating fast food. They're eating things on the go. Maybe they aren't 
the best for them. They don't love them back so much, but that they it's really they can all have time to do or they are snapping at their loved ones. They're not able to be the best mom, the best partner, the best dad to their families because they're chronically stressed, or they're not the best employee because they're chronically stressed. So there's a lot of shame around chronic stress. And then there's a lot of health-related shame. There's a lot of body shame that people have of not feeling good enough because of a way that our FOMO comparison culture on social media and media itself and there's a lot of shame around food and sort of this diet disillusionment that can go on. These are complex issues, but this concept that I talk about with my patients and I talk about in gut feelings of shame, inflammation, how do these mental, emotional, spiritual things, which is which, if it has to do with chronic stress or trauma or body love or lack of self-compassion, how do these things impact our physical health and how they literally can be stored in ourselves? impacting the way that our body methylates, which is our body's ability to regulate inflammation and detox and make neurotransmitters. How is it impacting us? Our body is a cellular library and the thoughts and our words and actions and experiences are the books that fill up that cellular library. So a lot of our work with our patients is really starting to shift that library to one of healing, one of grace, and one of self-compassion, so we can start to modulate our body in a positive way. But shame is this very nebulous thing because it's it's prescriptive for me to say on the food side of things, well, these foods are going to raise inflammation. These foods are going to disrupt your microbiome. And I talk about it in the book. I give a protocol for the gut-brain axis. It's needed, but it's in many ways simpler because it's very cut and dried, black and white. And we know how to get people better from a clinical nutrition standpoint. It is a lot more to unpack when you're talking about the feeling side of it, because you can't tell somebody to just not stress or not have shame or just drop that trauma. It doesn't work that way. But the work of unpacking that and starting to retrain the limbic system and retraining the nervous system on the feeling side is just as important, if not more important, for people to deal with these inflammatory problems, to deal with these metabolic problems, and deal with these brain health problems as well. Yeah, well, I love how in the book you point out that chronic stress is the ultimate junk food. Because if you don't deal with it, all the other things start falling down. You can go on as many diets as you want, you can do as much exercising you want, but until you get that stress out of the way it's going to severely influence all the other balance aspects of your life. Yeah, it really is true. But it's how do we unpack that? I guess that's the question. But and but hopefully with the protocol in the book, people can start leaning into things that are free or things that are low cost, accessible, inexpensive things. When you're talking about breath work, for example, it's completely free. I talk about the research coming out of Japan and South Korea called forest bathing, which comes from the Japanese word shinrin-yoku, which translates from Japanese to English as forest bathing. It's using nature as a meditation, using nature as a medicine. The science is fascinating of how we can use nature as a sensorial immersive bath to lower inflammation levels, to modulate the nervous system in positive direction. So you don't have to be a wellness aficionado. If you are, then fantastic. This book is for you. You can just be consistent with the simple, even if it's two or three things from the protocol. If you're consistent with the simple, you can start moving needle the needle in the positive direction in profound ways. Okay. Well, we've talked a lot about the background throughout the first chapters that you cover. 
But I really want to get into now your 21-day gut feeling plan and how it's designed to heal. Can you walk us through it? Sure. So as I talk about in the book, if you're talking about trauma, intergenerational trauma, like mainly the trauma of how it's passed down through generations, you're not going to resolve all of that in 21 days. I want to make some profound changes in the positive direction. But more than anything, I want us to get our head above water so we can start to see, all right, we want to keep doing the things that love us back. And avoiding things that don't love us back isn't restrictive. It's not obsessive. It's self-respect. And you also will get an idea of, as the reader, for to say, okay, these six different things within the protocol, I like those the most. I want to stay consistent. Maybe there's three gut action items and three feeling action items within the protocol. You don't have to do all of them. But I basically picked 42 of my favorite science-backed ways to support your gut and your feelings. There's 21 things for your gut, 21 things for your feelings. So people can pick up a few things from each one and stay consistent with it. So maybe on the gut side, it's the GAPS protocol that I talked about. And it's lots of soups and stews, which the theory around the GAPS protocol is just almost pre-digesting foods by cooking them in the Instapot or a pressure cooker or slow cooking your soups and stews. So it's easier to digest. So allow that second brain, allow your gut the time to repair and work on healing instead of the work that it requires to digest lots of raw foods. So I even have patients puree some vegetables sometimes. So that's one way to do it. You mentioned sugar, the connection between high sugar diet and anxiety, depression, and inflammation is the robust in the scientific literature. So decreasing the amount of sugar they're having, nourishing your body with foods that love you back and calm the inflammation and support that gut brain access is important. But on a feeling side, there's many different practices, but I mentioned forest bathing. I mentioned breath work. I talk about holotropic breath work, which the research around that's fascinating to me. It came out of the research of psychedelics and how psychedelics can modulate the nervous system in a positive way. Well, this isn't taking ayahuasca or psilocybin, this is endogenously tapping into all these mechanisms within your own body and your own brain through breath. And I talk about in the book of how throughout history, breath, it's been synonymous with spirit. Even in the Bible, Ruach HaKodesh is the Holy Spirit. It translates as breath. It's the word is Ruach is breath and spirit. So it's really looking at how prana in Eastern tradition. So it's looking at how breath can be a way to connect with your spirit and metabolize stored trauma and shift our nervous system in a positive way and strengthen that good old vagus nerve that we talked about that's regulating the parasympathetic resting and digesting chilled out proper healthy gut brain access somatic practices i talk a lot about them within the protocol too things like yoga and tai chi and dancing and drumming and body tapping there's so much people can do but again do they have to do all the things no i want them to experiment with these things and see which ones resonate with them the most and then get enough tools within their toolbox to stay consistent with over time because that's when you start to see the nervous system shift inflammation lower and then start to achieve their health goals yeah i had brad yates on the podcast last year i'm not sure familiar with him but he's one of the foremost experts in eft tapping and it's amazing through the techniques that he and others teach how much that can help you with everything from having issues going to sleep to waking up in the middle of the night to calming yourself down if you're experiencing stress and other things. And I know 
for me, I'm, I'm out of practice right now, but when I was doing yoga as a regular routine, it just made me feel so much more in balance to my inner core. And I know you recommend also adding mindfulness practices to the wellness routine. Why is that so important? Meditation as a whole, there's a lot of research to show it's supporting of this gut feeling connection, the parasympathetic connection. And one study specifically improves the thickness of the prefrontal cortex, the brain, which is really our master regulating effect of the executive functioning of the brain. Because a lot of people, their amygdala, the reptilian part of the brain, that fight or flight, feared, stressed, anxiety, which social media and our media really play into that sort of amygdala state. Meditation is a way to strengthen the grown-up in the room, the prefrontal cortex, and many other ways. It will lower inflammation levels. It will help balancing hormone levels because of this modulating parasympathetic supporting mechanisms of the body. So there's different ways of meditation. I mean, mindfulness meditation, like one of just being mind present moment awareness or Eckhart Tolle called it inner body awareness, anything that anchors you into the present moment, being even mindful of your breath, where it's not even specific, like holotropic or breath box breathing or something like that. It's just your natural rhythms of your breath can be also an anchor into the present moment as well. But different meditation practices are a great way to support this parasympathetic state. So important for many of us to rectify that seesaw imbalance of the sympathetic being overactive and the parasympathetic being underactive. Okay. And I can't do an episode with you without talking about intermittent fasting. And I think we have another person in common who we both know, Dr. Dom D'Agostino. Yeah. And mine here in the Tampa Bay area. Yes. And Dom and I did a great talk on ketosis, but also on intermittent fasting. And he actually told me I was doing it too much. But <laughs> I know there's a difference between time-based eating, which is what I do. I try to give myself 16 hours between my last meal and the next meal. And then I try to box in the other one somewhere between six to seven hours. But I think intermittent fasting is when you take a full day off, maybe a week or three days a month. Can you kind of go through the differences and why intermittent fasting is so important to regulating our gut health? Absolutely. This is one of the gut action items in the book too. It's something that I've studied a lot over the years, implemented many different types of fasting protocols and time compressed feeding protocols and patients' lives. My last book was called Intuitive Fasting. I was also exploring sort of the indigenous, like using fasting as a medicine and a meditation and how humans would have done that for a long time for different reasons. We're making the connection to the gut. The research shows that our gut has a circadian rhythm similar to our hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. So we have the sleep-wake cycle and this S-shaped circadian rhythm of cortisol. Similarly, Researchers are looking at the circadian rhythm of the gut microbiome, which certain colonies of bacteria are higher in the morning, some are higher in the evening, and we have this wave-like rhythm, this diurnal rhythm of the microbiome, this gut gardens, gut ocean, whatever analogy you want to think of, that's influencing our neurotransmitters, impacting conversion of hormones. Like For example, 20% of the thyroid hormone is converted in the gut and inflammation levels we talked about. So on labs and certainly in the research 
there's a lot of bacterial overgrowth, yeast and fungal overgrowth, things like SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth that I mentioned earlier that are associated with all types of inflammatory problems and digestive problems and brain health problems like anxiety and depression and fatigue. Fasting's a way to sort of reset that gut clock in a way by doing some days of intermittent fasting. And actually some of the studies that I know around this was actually just what you're doing. It's some nice, gentle, moderate, time-compressed feeding that helps to kind of clean and slough off in a way or prune that gut clock to allow the gut time to repair and help to be a supportive tool to support gut health. And on top of that, we know, especially longer fast, if you're talking about the deeper 24-hour fast done intermittently, not all the time, it really lends itself to ketosis, which intermittent times of ketosis, which Dom talks all about too, is the neuroprotective benefits of it, sort of the nervous system support of it, which times of cyclical times of hormesis or the good stress that fasting brings can make our nervous system more resilient, which in part, the stronger your nervous system is, the stronger that migrating motor complex is going to be that sort of gut brain communication, which keeps the bacteria in check. Because the more we have that wave-like motion of the intestines innervated by the nervous system, keeping the bacteria into the large intestines, the more the bacteria is going to be kept in the large intestines, the colon, where it should be. Because most people, I would, I would venture to say, the vast majority of people have dysbiosis because of this epigenetic genetic mismatch, the way that we're eating, not just what we're eating, but when we're eating and how we're eating and the stress that we're in when we're eating, always playing a part to the disruption of this gut microbiome, which is influencing so many things in our life. Well, thank you for that explanation. And I wanted to talk about one other area, and that is hormones. And I am a person who both playing collegiate division one sports. And then when I was in the military, unfortunately suffered a number of traumatic brain injuries. And I kept having post-concussion syndrome symptoms until I saw this functional medical doctor, Dr. Mark Gordon, who really started looking at if the hormones aren't properly operating at the right capacities, the impact that it has on not dealing with amyloid plaques and other things that you would suffer from traumatic brain injuries or even clearing things out that could lead to dementia or Alzheimer's. But what I wanted to ask you is the hormones are also the internal communication system for the body. Can you just go through a little bit of how they work and why they're so important to regulate properly? Certainly. And this is a chapter in the book that's important for me because it is going to impact how people feel, but in many ways, it is a downstream response. So why I wrote that chapter in the book was to show people the ripple effect, the cascade, when their gut brain axis is off and they have both physiological and psychological stress, trauma, things going on, the downstream ripple effect that it's going to play on hormones. You mentioned traumatic brain injury. So first of all, so sorry you went through that, but also that's a good example to explain how physical traumas, just like mental, emotional, spiritual trauma will impact how hormones are expressed. Anybody that has some damage or dysfunction to the gut brain axis, the downstream response to that will be a decrease of neural output from the brain to the endocrine system. So a lot of endocrine issues, i.e. hormonal problems are most 
I wouldn't say most, but a big chunk of them are brain-based. So when you're dealing with the hypothalamic, pituitary, adrenal axis, or the brain thyroid axis, or the brain ovarian axis, or the brain testicular axis, there is normally a neuroendocrine component to it and could be part of that, a, a neuroinflammatory endocrine component to it. So in many ways, when we just look at the downstream effects of, let's just say, low testosterone, or for women like low progesterone, higher estrogen, those things don't often happen in a vacuum. There's a larger puzzle, whether it be for some person, traumatic brain injury, for other person, an underlying gut problem that's raising inflammation levels, it's impacting the gut brain axis, which is then impacting the brain hormonal axis. So there's a whole number of reasons. For some people, it's unresolved trauma that's keeping their nervous system in that fight or flight stress state, which is causing cortisol to be off, which will impact testosterone, estrogen, and progesterone. So the whole number of chicken or egg scenarios that I really want people to start asking these questions to see what do I need to do to start healing? Because you can overcome these things. People don't have to settle with it's just their lot in life, or they're just big because it's their everyday, they should settle for it. Because these things are largely overcomable, healable, reversible things, if we give our body the chance to repair. So these are things we quantify in labs, and we need to deal with it. But ultimately, there's a, normally a bigger context as to why these things were off in the first place. That's not to say that downstream support like hormone replacement therapy isn't going to be palliative or be a tool within the toolbox because it can definitely provide symptom relief for many people. And especially if somebody's perimenopausal or postmenopausal, that's a, certainly an example to say, look, that's a normal transition of life. Can some judicious hormone replenishing based on labs with a doctor be appropriate for them? Maybe, but many people are just put on hormone replacement therapy and they're not tested for their hormones in the first place. And it's not really dealing with the root cause of why you had the problem in the first place. So I think this is an important conversation because so many people maybe saw in a lab, their hormones are off, but ultimately what's the bigger context of why these things are off? And oftentimes it's this gut feeling component that I'm talking about in the book. Okay. And then one last one for you, and it's completely going in a different direction, but why is crying healthy? <laughs> so I laugh because it's not like a sad crying per se, but it's a catharsis, right? It could be sad in the moment to release it. But I quote Glennon Doyle in the book, how she calls it crying an organic baptism for you to kind of submerge and reemerge again anew. And there's a Japanese practice called Ruikatsu, which is translates to English as tear seeking. So it's these communal institutions within certain communities of Japan that come together to cry together as a community and how it impacts our endorphins and our opiates in the body to support that parasympathetic to lower inflammation levels back to that whole modulating of the nervous system into more of a parasympathetic state and support lowered inflammation levels is part of that. So yeah, it's how can we use crying to metabolize stored trauma? Going back to that, the somatic practices of yoga. And I think of all the yoga teachers that talk about the hip openers of class. And I've heard so many yoga teachers talk about the hip openers, people start crying. Why are they crying? Well, 
that can be stored trauma, just like crying can be for some people. So there's a lot of different somatic ways that we can release stored trauma. It doesn't have to be crying. It can be, but there are many ways to release these things that are keeping us not well. Okay. And then I always close on this question. If there was a takeaway you wanted for a reader of the book or a listener of the show, what would a main one be? The back cover of the book, it's a major mantra of the clinic. You can't heal a body you hate and you can't shame your way into wellness or obsess your way into health. And ultimately the book is predicated on bringing a grace and a lightness into wellness. Cause I think biohacking is wonderful. We talk all about it in the book, but ultimately I think it can be a source of obsession and orthorexia, which is disordered eating around healthy foods. If people are not checking themselves, I really wanted to have a massive heart to the health community and the wellness community of which I've been a part of since I was that 16 year old weird kid buying bell peppers and putting them in my lunchbox is why are we doing these things? And stressing about eating healthy isn't good for your health. Like obsessing about the latest like aura ring score or whoop band score or how long we stayed in the cold bath and it becomes sort of the source of dread and obsession and shame. It is really the antithesis of sustainable wellness. As much as I'm talking about the research of trauma and, and stress and underlying gut problems in this gut feeling connection, I really couldn't have that conversation without talking to the main people that are going to be reading this book, which are health aficionados that tend to take everything to an extreme level, which is in a saboteur to actually regaining health. And believe me, I look at labs all day long. And most of my patients are extremely erudite people who know more than most doctors do about health. But I look at their labs, and they're better off than they would be if they weren't doing their good things. But part of what's keeping them stuck at these plateaus is this sort of unhealthy obsession or shame flammation, as I call it in the book, around these good things. So it's a paradigm shift, a hard reckoning of why we're doing what we're doing within wellness. So I guess that would be my answer to that. Well, I love the book. I will make sure it's all throughout the show notes. And I always put a picture of the book as well. So just link on that. It'll take you right to a place where you can buy it if you're part of the audience. Will, if someone wanted to know more about you or they would like to set up an appointment with you, what is the best place for them to do so? Thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Everything's at drwillcole.com. That's D-R-W-I-L-C-O-L-E.com. The links to Gut Feelings there, the telehealth center, all the telehealth new patient options are there. And my podcast, The Art of Being Well, the links to that as well. Yes. And I've checked out a number of episodes. Please go check it out. If you like the Passion Struck podcast, you'll love Will's show as well. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was truly an honor to have you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I thoroughly enjoyed that interview with Dr. Will Cole. And I wanted to thank Will, Penguin Random House, and Alyssa Fortunato for giving me the honor of interviewing him on today's show. Links to all things Will will be in the show notes on passionstruck.com. Please use our website links if you purchase any of the books from the guests that we feature on the show. All proceeds go to supporting the show. Videos are on YouTube, and you can find them at John R. Miles and Passion Struck Clips. Advertiser deals and discount codes are in one convenient place at passionstruck.com deals. I'm on LinkedIn, and you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at John R. Miles, where I provide daily posts to give you inspiration. You're about to hear a preview of the Passion Struck podcast interview I did with Lydia Finette, who in her two decades-long career as the leading charity auctioneer in the world has changed the fundraising game, single-handedly raising over a billion dollars 
for over 800 different charity organizations. Lydia is the author of the new book, Claim Your Confidence, and hosts the podcast of the same name. You are the only person who is the architect of what you're doing in your life. And if you're constantly looking around for other people's opinions, of course, you're not going to be confident because you're just trying to please everyone else. So what are you doing to live in your truest form? And what are you doing to ensure that you're a confident person? I believe that that is all within you. It's just going to take some soul searching to figure out what you want and then be true to that in life. The fee for this show is that you share it with family or friends when you find something useful or interesting. If you know someone who's looking at how to improve their physical and emotional health, then please share today's episode with them. The greatest compliment that you can give us is when you share the show with those that you care and love. In the meantime, do your best to apply what you hear on the show so that you can live what you listen. And until next time, live life passion struck. Oh,